the studios of KPCW in Park City, Utah, this is Cool Science Radio. Science and technology that's interesting, fun, and if we can understand it well, so will you. I'm John Wells. And I'm Lynn Ware Peak. Our first guest this morning, Giulio Boccoletti, who has written Water, a biography. Boccoletti's book details the history of how the management and distribution of water has shaped human civilization. We look forward to our conversation with Giulio. Our second guest this morning is Julie Beer, who has written a new book called Why? Animals, 99 Awesome Answers for Curious Kids. It's the first in a new series of National Geographic books designed to supercharge your child's curiosity while keeping them entertained. The book answers questions such as, why do flamingos stand on one leg? Why can't penguins fly? And why do dogs wag their tails? Our next guest is Giulio Boccoletti, who has written Water, a biography. Boccoletti's book details the history of how the management and distribution of water has shaped human civilization. Giulio, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Thank you for having me. Well, we're delighted to have you on the program this morning and, well, afternoon where you are. When I was in school reading about history and all the reading that I've done because I, I really enjoy history after I got out of school, I've never uh, considered water as a central character. And you really shine a light on the importance of water in the management and distribution in, in shaping our civilization. Can you talk about the central argument of your book? Sure. Um, well, you know, water is the agent of the climate system on the planet. Uh, the floods, the droughts that define what's around us are the expression of the climate system. And it turns out that water is an extremely powerful agent. It can transform our environment, uh, change our life, the security of our livelihoods, um, and uh, the shape uh, of what's around us. And so ever since we became sedentary uh, 10,000 years ago, um, and ever since we became essentially, we stood still in a world of moving water, we've uh, generated this relationship with this active agent that transforms, uh, transforms the landscape. And so the story of the book is really the story of this relationship or what I would call a, a dialectic relationship in the sense that, you know, we move, we transform the landscape around us to uh, achieve security and produce food and water transforms it in turn. And in this kind of dance uh, that uh, that uh, we've been engaged in we've sort of defined our institutions and our civilizations and uh, the last thing i say here is that uh, you know i've written this book because for the last uh, several years i think we've completely forgotten this very basic relationship that governs our life and i think that it is now very important that we recognize it because the climate system is changing and as, as the climate system changes so will water and that's why i think it's important to recognize this uh, this profound relationship that links us to it. Well, it certainly has a lot of people's attention. Uh, Lynn and I live in Park City, Utah, uh, the Southwest, taking a peek at that, a little south from here, St. George is one of the fastest growing cities in America, and they are putting golf courses and developments in everywhere. Same with next door in Nevada and Mesquite, Las Vegas, of course, Phoenix, and hundreds of golfing communities, many of those that are expanding. Uh, the Hoover Dam that has just put new highly efficient hydroelectric turbines to make more electricity with less water unless there's, and yet they're still not getting enough water volume to continue the electrical output that they wish. 
Uh, meanwhile, the Colorado River depends on snowpack that kind of isn't coming the way it was 20 years ago. Will we reach a point where all of a sudden 30 or 40 million people are out of water? Um, you know, water will never disappear entirely, but some people will run out of water, right? And and typically what will happen is that those with the least power, which are typically not those that live in cities, but are often those that live on farms out in the landscape, may run out of water. You see, the promise of the 20th century, the promise of the modernist project that transformed the West of the United States was to emancipate everybody from having to worry about the environment, from having to worry about the variability of rainfall the promise of Hoover Dam, of Lake Mead, of all these vast infrastructures of, uh, uh, you know, of, of the great transformation uh, of, uh, of the West, you know, the, the gift of Mulholland, if you remember the, the stories of Chinatown, right? Well, that was that infrastructure and institutions would essentially allow us all to ignore the environment. Water would become essentially the background, the scenery, a static set, uh, for our life as we go on, uh, uh, you know, on our sort of consumption-led life. And so you and I, none of us, uh, you know, wade a river on our way to work, and we always open a tap and water always comes out. Uh, now, the problem is that those institutions, all of that, the Hoover Dam, uh, you know, the, the American Canal, all that infrastructure was dimensioned on the variability of the 20th century, on the way in which the climate system behaved uh, at the time. And what's happened over the last 20, 30 years, certainly all your listeners in the West will know this, is that the climate system has changed. You know, the West of the United States has been in a drought for over 20 years now. At some point, you stop calling it a drought and you just say, well, the climate has shifted, right? It's a different climatology. And the infrastructure and institutions that we built back then in the progressive era are no longer fit for purpose. And so they're forcing us to ask the question, what next? And what's next is not necessarily that everybody runs out of water. What next is another step in this dance with water, we'll have to build new infrastructure, we'll have to change our habits, we may have to change what we see when we look out of the window, maybe no more golf courses, maybe much more zero scaping, right? But these are all political decisions, meaning those who have power will decide what the landscape looks like. And in that tussle, in that political debate, those with the least power may, may lose out. And so I don't think we'll run out of water you know, universally. I don't think it's a place where, you know, the West suddenly becomes uninhabitable. But I do think that there will be victims to that transition. And if we're not careful, uh, those victims may well be the food systems of the West. So interesting. I feel like now with with the focus on water and the lack of water, um, it it's telling a story about how we're going to go forward, as you say. But I, I don't think I've ever looked at the history of the institutions that form and even the democracy that forms around harnessing water. So now we talk about scarcity of water, but back, you know, 10,000 years ago, when you say we became sedentary, which I'd, I'd be curious about the definition of that as, as compared to 300,000 years ago, when, I, when we were hunter-gatherers, how it got us thinking about harnessing water. Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, it's, you know, inevitably it's a simplification to say that we became sedentary 10,000 years ago. As far as we know, most human hominid societies and most human societies, which, as you as you say, have been around for about 300,000 years, were hunter-gatherers for most of that time. Of course, we don't have enormous amounts of evidence, so we don't 
know for sure, but we think that was the case. What that means is that we adapted, we moved around. If water had to come through, we moved out of the way. If we didn't find enough water in one place, we would move uh, somewhere else. And then uh, after the last glacial maximum, uh, as the world of water was changing, remember the last glacial maximum, Chicago was under a kilometer, a mile of ice, right? Almost a mile of ice. And then all of that stuff kind of melted away. The Great Lakes of the United States are the puddles that were left after that uh, great melting. Well, that was the time, that mo moment of massive transformation of the water landscape of the world was the time when we became sedentary first. And then we started uh, actually creating artificial ecosystems agriculture essentially right was the was the next step and suddenly we find ourselves having to construct you know the water world that surrounded us in order to to support uh, to support us now that that uh, kind of moment is so important because water operates at scales that are far greater than any individual can manage and so by virtue of the nature of the of the of the phenomena that uh, relate to water the storms the floods the droughts it, it they require society to act collectively right we have to exercise our collective agency and that's where the need for political institutions that help us organize and transform the environment in a deterministic fashion that's where the 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 institutions are born and you know the argument is not a, a narrowly deterministic one i'm not saying that you know democracy and the law arise just because of our relationship with water but what the book does is reveal that in the dna of all those institutions lies that dialectic relationship that relationship with water and and you know lynn this wouldn't have been a mystery to our, our great grandparents right up until the end of the 19th century that water defined life on the landscape at a time when still most people lived in the rural landscape wasn't a mystery. Most people did wade rivers on their way to work. Most people did have to pick out a bucket and go out to the river in the morning to get some water. Now, today, that's still true for many of the poorest in the world, but it's no longer true for those of us who live in developed countries. We've, we've forgotten this. In the United States, for example, we've completely forgotten of that profound relationship. And that's why I think it's particularly important to remind people of that history today, because water's on the move. It's changing everything around us, and it's revealing that what we thought had been fixed forever was, in fact, only temporarily fixed. And we now have to engage again in that dance. Yeah, it's interesting, the parallels, perhaps, maybe not in your or mine or John's lifetimes, maybe not in our children's lifetimes, maybe in our grandchildren's lifetimes, people may begin to be on the move again as water disappears. And I think about, you know, the Salt Lake, the Great Salt Lake, I, I'm, I'm sure you're very familiar with it and, and also how it's receding. And we're talking about the absence, uh, the the probable absence of the Great Salt Lake and what that means for communities like ours, Park City, that is that are east of it and getting that sort of dust bowl effect from the disappearance of the water. It may mean in the future we, we are relocating or our you know our offspring are relocating from a place like this mm. so i i just uh i think the question there is you know how how much are there parallels between what we might see in our future and what was seen before we we harness the power of the water or yeah well it's a, it's a great point and you know one of the stories that happens over and over again over the course of 10,000 years 
of history that I write. In particular, there's a story I tell about the end of the Bronze Age in, in the book, and, and that is an archetype of things that have happened ever since, which is that water crises rarely are associated with a flood of water frequently they're associated with a flood of people in that you know the most vulnerable in a geopolitical system start moving but this is where i think um, awareness of the importance of water not just at home where we live but in our surroundings and in our regional and continental surroundings matter a great deal because the fact of the matter is that the west of the united states and the united states as a whole is a you know rich society that has the means to transform the environment uh, to deliver security to its citizens now that may come at a cost it may not deliver security security to everybody in the same way. But we have to remember Dubai exists, right? With enough resources, you can transform your environment to render it secure. The problem is when the changing climate and changing water conditions hit people that don't have that level of resources, that don't have in their means the way of managing uh, the environment. You know, think of the Horn of Africa today, for example. 20 million people, as we speak, as John Lynn and, and I speak, are food insecure to the point of starvation because of three consecutive droughts in Ethiopia, Somalia, and Kenya. Already 2 million people have moved in Somalia. 2 million people, right? They've started moving because they've unhinged their relationship to their own environment. Their environment is simply unmanageable and they have to move. This is going to happen more and more. And those of us who live in rich countries, you know, are engaged in looking at our backyard and thinking about how we might modify it to make it more livable, you know, the new a new piece of infrastructure, or maybe we change the way in which we grow our gardens. We give up, you know, we we give up having a green lawn, or maybe the Salt Lake uh, is reduced to the point that it requires fundamental changes to our urban landscape. But none of those experiences will compare to the starvation that will hit the most vulnerable in the world as they face similar changes. And so I think that the purpose of revealing the story of water is also the purpose of revealing that it shows up. You know, the, the most profound changes in human history have happened not where the biggest water changes have happened, but where the biggest vulnerability to water changes existed. And that's, that's really the story of our relationship with this thing. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we are speaking with Giulio Boccoletti, who has written Water, a biography. And in our rich country of the United States, we have cities like Flint and Jackson, Mississippi, uh, Flint, Michigan, and Jackson, Mississippi. Um, and it and it appears that when water gets polluted, it's it's it always seems to uh, hit those that are most vulnerable, as you as you just mentioned. Can you talk a little bit about some of the current events here in our country? Yeah, well, I mean, that's a that's a symptom of the fact that for the last 40, 50 years, we've forgotten that uh, the delivery of water security, and by water security, I mean having access to enough water to grow food and drink. Uh, it means being protected from floods, but it also means having access to water that's of sufficient quality for drinking purposes, and it's safe, right? Remember that even since, you know, Benjamin Franklin and others started building public utilities in America, the purpose, the primary purpose of water distribution was public health, right, was the delivery of a stable public health context. And so now that utility system is failing. And why is it failing? Well, it's failing because we've forgotten that, uh, you know, public utilities, and particularly the delivery of clean water, is a public health intervention that requires collective action. The way in which we've done it historically is we've all paid taxes, and through those taxes, we've funded publicly 
typically, particularly in America, actually, publicly, municipally owned uh, utilities that would deliver water security to people. And we recognize that this is a bit like hospitals. You have to have a basic primary care system, in this case, a primary water security system, to ensure that everything else works, right? If you don't have clean water, then you spend most of your day worrying about that, and you don't actually, you don't participate in society as a proactive member. But one of the fundamental truths of this is that if communities become so poor that they can't afford the infrastructure costs that are required to clean their water, if people become so marginalized or communities are so small that they simply can't afford the type of infrastructure that's required, well, if you think of it as a, just a service that gets sold, then you say, well, you know, fine, they'll have to just move. But if you think of it as a, a fundamental public health intervention that goes to the, you know, the fundamental rights to health and, and dignity that people have, then you have to ask yourself whether collectively who you have a responsibility to make sure that those communities have access to the security that they need. And that's a, you know, it's a fraught debate, right? It's a fraught debate about what's the relationship between the role of the state in protecting people and the role of individuals in ensuring their own security. The only thing I would say here is that the United States created the, the model for the world on the role of the state in ensuring uh, water security. The West of the United States created the archetype. People in California, you know, San Diego is 2 million people, not 10,000 people, as its actual natural environment would enable, because the federal government in the 1920s and 30s invested enormous amounts of resources to ensure that there was that basic infrastructure water security to enable the economic growth that everybody enjoyed. And I think now we're back there as water moves, as demographics change, as wealth is distributed differently in society, we have to ask ourselves again, what's our collective responsibility to each other's water security? Because that's the foundation of economic development. And to me, Flint and Jackson are examples of where avoiding to answer that question leads to problems. We can't ignore it. We have to engage on it. And as the country uh, uh, expanded with all of this, was it the TVA that these other countries were were uh, following and taking that model and bringing that into their own country? It was. I mean, the TVA is probably the, the crown jewel of that experience, although, you know, many people around the world, even today, look at the Hoover Dam as kind of the archetype, right? I mean, in many ways, the, um, you know, the Three Gorges Dam, which is the biggest dam today, uh, in the world, built on the Yangtze by the Chinese government. Its original project was actually uh, conceived by the head of the army, you know, chief engineer of the Army Corps of Engineers in the 1940s, and it was modeled after the famous billion-dollar dams of the U.S., including Hoover Dam. But, but TVA, the Tennessee Valley Authority, is probably the archetype of that moment. It's both the pinnacle and the end of that story uh, for two reasons. One is because it, it, it represents the pinnacle of federal engagement of the management of water in the United States. There was a TVA in, in Roosevelt's uh, ideas. There would have been four TVAs, one for each corner of the country. There would have been the Tennessee Valley Authority, would have been one in the St. Lawrence River, one on the Columbia, and one on the Colorado. But after the TVA was constructed, the, the states uh, saw it as a massive overreach of federal government powers and uh, stopped the construction of any other 
Tennessee Valley Authority-like project. And so the Valley Authority as an idea, you know, a, a publicly owned corporation had the flexibility of the private sector, but the underwriting and sovereignty of the public sector, well, that's, you know, that never was replicated in the United States, but it was exported everywhere in the world. When Truman came to power, you know, he had his famous fourth point strategy after the war. Uh, it was a it was a strategy of influence and of hegemony. It was an attempt at saying the United States has learned a lot. It's the world hegemon and should export its experience around the world. And that's how we ended up with a Jordan Valley Authority in Jordan, of course. That's how we ended up with a Helmand Valley Authority in Afghanistan. That's how we ended up with a Awash Valley Authority in Ethiopia. The Indus was designed as a Valley Authority, right? The Indus Waters Treaty between Pakistan and India is designed around the idea of a, of a value authority. In fact, it was proposed, the treaty was first proposed by David Lilithal, who was the first director of the Tennessee Value Authority. The Three Gorges Dam was conceived of as the heart of a potential Yangtze Value Authority. And even, imagine this, even the European Union, right, which is the largest consumer market in the world, the, the founder of the European Union, Jean Monnet, was a Frenchman, but he was a student of Roosevelt and a, a fan of the Tennessee Valley Authority. And he thought of the European Union as the Tennessee Valley Authority of Europe. So that, that model of investment in the landscape, underwritten by the power and sovereignty of the federal government, that transforms the landscape and creates the infrastructure upon which the growth of the United States in the 20th century was based, that model was exported all over the world. Uh, we kind of forgot about it. The US forgot about it. Uh, about that infrastructure, right? Forgot about it as people got enamored with the idea that markets could solve anything. But the reality is water can't just be managed through markets because water is really about what do you see when you look out of the window? It's about the shape and structure of our landscape. And that's much more than about markets. That's about, you know, who has the right to define our environment? Uh, and that's a collective decision if there ever was one. And, and that's when we fail to engage in this question, that's where things like Flint and Jackson happen. Mm. Wow, so interesting. Your your book and the stories, the vignettes that you tell about certain places. I I always love to talk about Italy. And since you're Italian, let's let's go to Italy. And you know, as Americans, I think we see these um photos of, of Venice, for example, with the canals, you know, with the rising water and what Venice is going to do. And and maybe I'll just ask you about that. How, you know, what kind of adaptations is, are being made as these waters are rising? Well, you know, people forget that Venice has been underwater forever, right? So when you see water rising in Venice, you know, there's part of the story is, well, that's how it was constructed. I mean, it was, you know, Ven I mean, my Italian uh, compatriots will hate me for saying this, but, you know, Venice is a Dubai of the 10th century, right? I mean, it was a entirely constructed city that didn't exist there, and it's built on artificial islands that are held up by, uh, you know, pylons of wood that are that are sort of planted underwater. And so in a way, it's the it's the ultimate example of uh, of the sort of human constructed landscape. But it suffers from the same problem that we were discussing just now. The climate system is changing in a way that's quite radical compared to the last thousand years, certainly compared to how Venice uh, developed, you know, the climate during which uh, Venice developed. And so th there's a part of this story which is about the attempts of the Italian government and the Italian community to protect to Venice, you know, build uh, infrastructure to protect it and, and manage
village, the rivers, Venice is a rather complicated uh, lagoon, so it has both the sort of sea level rise, but also the transformation of the rivers that feed water into it uh, to contend with. But I would argue that the most interesting conversation about Venice is one of political agency. You know, Venice survived for a thousand years, not so much as, you know, the water city, but as the model republic before America from the 6th century all the way to the 1780s, all the way to when Napoleon came, um, you know, Venice was the republic in a world of monarchies, mostly. And uh, if there's one thing that this book uh, is, it, it is a republican book, not in the American political sense of republican book, but in the sense that our relationship with water uh, is about self-governance. It's about the tension between individual liberty and collective responsibility towards each other uh, and towards the management of the landscape. If you live in a world that's dominated by a force that overwhelms the individual, as water does, as the coastline of Venice does, then you have to ask yourself, what is the right political institution? What is the right political architecture to enable a community to legitimately manage its resources and confront this power on the landscape. And the answer that I come to is the Republic. And uh, in fact, I spend a lot of time on the American Republic because in, of course, in modernity, the American Republic is the modern Republic in many ways. And it shouldn't surprise you to know that, you know, Washington and the, the sort of uh, Constitutional Convention spend a lot of time talking about water, right? You know, because it was actually central. So Venice teaches us, I think, that when a community faces an overwhelming environment, what we should be looking for are not physical infrastructure structure. Those are just the symptoms of something deeper, which is the political institutions and political compact that that community lives by. And I would argue the most important invention from, you know, Athens uh, onwards has been the Republic as a way of managing our collective agency on the landscape. Hmm. Oh, so interesting. So uh, we just have about a minute remaining. Um, but I wanted to ask you, why don't we stay in Italy? Because I I, I knew that Bologna, which I think is your hometown, um, had the oldest, basically the oldest university. That's kind of what it's famed for. But it also has this series of canals that I thought was so fascinating that created really its economy around the water as yeah. the water was used to um, run these silk mills. Really interesting. Um, and how... How does Bologna now, you know, coming from a water economy, how how does it shift and change? Well, you know, the Bologna is a little archetype of the story that I tell, because if you go to Bologna in the middle of the plain of the Po plain, the Po River is like the Mississippi of Italy, except that it's much smaller, right? And you're a hundred miles from the sea, and you wouldn't know that water has anything to do with the city. But under the streets, under the paved roads that today occupy by this, uh, this uh, inland city, the canals, the medieval canals that were the fuel of the medieval economy still run, right? Uh, and as you say, there was a point at which uh, Bologna, inland city, 100 miles from the sea, was the fifth largest port in Europe and the largest producer of silk uh, one of the largest producers of silk in Europe. So all those Flemish paintings that you see with silk uh, collars, well, that silk came from Bologna. And, you know, similarly, the Bologna, the school, the university, the, which was founded in 1088, is also the origin of our modern legal systems, right? It's where the Roman system of law was recovered from the past and reintroduced into Europe and into the world, to the point that today all legal systems are effectively based on, uh, on Roman law. So Bologna is... Uh, 
is a city that's unaware of its water past. And in a way, it's that's the sort of audience that I wrote the book for, because uh, I want it to be a revelation, right? We have to re-engage with our landscape. And that is not just about conserving nature. It's about making hard choices about this powerful force on our, on our territory and who gets to control it. And you can't do that if you don't realize that that's the central political question of our time. Uh, and so Bologna, sort of unaware of its surrounding and unaware of its roots in water, is really an archetype for the predicament we're in. We think we are living in a static environment, but we're not. Water moves around us as it did 10,000 years ago, and we have to dance with it. Giulio Boccoletti has written Water, a biography. We want to thank you so much for joining us this morning on Cool Science Radio. And we wish you continued success with such a fascinating book. Yeah. Thank you very much. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Lynn Ware Peak here with John Wells. Now, we all know that little kids ask an awful lot of questions. Why can sometimes seem like the only word they know? Now, here's a chance to have some answers. Our next guest is Julie Beer, who has written Why Animals 99 Awesome Answers for Curious Kids. And I might say adults. It's, it, it is the first in a new series of Nat Geo books designed to supercharge your child's curiosity while keeping them entertained for hours. The book answers so many questions. Well, we'll get to those questions. Julie Beer, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I might say I, I love this series of Nat Geo books for kids because I really feel like they're books for adults in disguise. And by in disguise, I mean that these are things that adults probably like most of us don't know. And now that we're adults and we're supposed to know everything, we're we're too um we have too much pride to ask. And I'm wondering, for example, if you have ever surveyed adults about how many people know why flamingos stand on one leg? I'm totally with you on this. Like I think that um, you know, just like all those great cartoons where they have the adult jokes in them that only adults will laugh at. I feel like this is sort of the same way. Like we, you know, it's labeled as for kids, but adults, you know, can can definitely go along. One other, I think, point to, that you're that you make a good one is that, you know, a lot has changed since we were kids, and a lot of the science has changed, and a lot of what we know about animal behavior has changed. So, I think if we can, you know suck up our pride a little bit and realize we might not know everything. <laughs> um, we realize that like a lot has changed and there's just so much more to learn. These kids books, they teach, they're, they're targeted for children, you know, eight to 12 ish. That's definitely a low mark. I would say it goes all the way up. <laughs> um, yeah. Flamingos. Amazing. I agree. I think that um, growing up when I've seen flamingos, I assumed that maybe their legs got tired and they maybe switched off legs or something like that. It's actually a new science that they, they're not positive yet, but one leading reason why they think that flamingos stand on one leg is to thermal regulate. So they tuck one leg up under their feathers to heat it up. Then they switch off and then, you know, heat up the other one and go back and forth. Who knew? I wouldn't have guessed that. <laughs> so well, that's interesting. 
That makes a lot of sense. I know in the winter in Utah, high up in the mountains, sometimes I take one mitten off and put it on my stomach or underneath my right. arm at a time to yeah. do thermoregulating. So. so interesting. Yeah. And I think like to that word thermoregulate, it seems like a really high access, big word for kids. Um, I really think that we underestimate kids. I think they get it. Like, especially if you can relate it to something like the taking off the mitten thing and put it in context for kids, they're able to really get those concepts and they want to know, like, they don't want to just know the basics. They, they really want to dive deep. That's why they keep asking us, you know, one why question leads to, you know, 20 more why questions. <laughs> <laughs> If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we are speaking with Julie Beer, and she has written uh, Why Animals. It's a Nat Geo book, 99 plus awesome answers for curious kids. And I, I, I wanted to mention that the uh, that the book is also beautifully illustrated. And not only are we learning these facts, but the pictures are pretty cool too, Julie. Um, uh, did you get involved in picking out these pictures? Yeah, National Geographic is just so known for its photography. And I think that's what really gets kids excited is to see, you know, it's one thing to write about a seahorse, but then to look at one up close, you know, and looking at those tiny little fins and that curly Q tail that it has, that's what really gets kids excited. The writing comes first and then the photography and design comes afterwards. So I leave that to, to them. I mean, the photographers, they know what to do. The designers know how to make the book beautiful. So my job though, is to provide a nice mix for them. So, you know, I know that kids are gonna wanna see a panda bear because yeah. they're amazing and all kids love panda bears. So there's certain animals that I know that des designers and photographers are gonna wanna use. But then from there, I also just kind of let the imagination go to find, you know, as many fun, interesting animals questions that I can. And living in Utah, uh, I knew that eagles nests were very large, uh, but I didn't Gosh. know how large they were. And in your book, they're uh, 10 feet in uh, diameter or 10 feet wide and 20 feet deep. But the yeah. real interesting thing was that I, I never knew this before, but a bald eagle may sometimes attack an osprey, another bird of prey, in flight, forcing it to drop its food so the eagle can eat the food. I didn't know that. It's, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. I mean, basically, an eagle's nest is like as big as a big hot tub. I mean, they're they're huge. Um, you know, we don't get a real good look at them from the ground too often, but they're so impressive. But yeah, eagles are, um, you know, they don't hold back. They're pretty tough. They're pretty tough predators themselves. So yeah, they, they're they sneaky about getting other animals food if they want to. And But what a treat to get to see one. I've seen a few out here in California and uh, it, my jaw drops when I've seen them. They're huge. They're so impressive. Yeah. Julie, I'm wondering what your background is and how did you come to work for National Geographic? Um, so I, my background was in journalism and I got a job at National Geographic magazine uh, 25 years ago or so. And I was a researcher there for a number of years. And then I've been writing uh, kids books for um, 20 years. So um, I've been a part of National Geographic for, uh, well, gosh, half my life. 
Wow, that's incredible. Uh, what what a rich career you've had, really. I mean, and, you know, I think the other thing about um, adults looking at Nat Geo kids books, you know, we talked about <laughs> swallowing your pride and admitting you don't know some of these things or, or just more than anything, having the curiosity. And I'm wondering if what you've done in your career has just kept your curiosity alive so much. I think some of the rest of us have to almost practice curiosity mm -hmm. to look above and see the bald eagle stealing prey and, and that sort of thing. So, you know, what is your advice for keeping us curious as we grow into adults and, and beyond? Yeah. Um, I think that, yeah, I totally agree. Like, I think that being curious does keep your mind alive and it, it, it engages you. I think it also just opens up air, so much more. Like, so, um, you know, when you're on a trip and you've got an opportunity, you know, if you're traveling and you're, I was in Monterey a couple of weekends ago. And so uh, for me, like knowing that there were some sea otters somewhere out there, I was going to find them. Like I had my eye out and I wanted to know more, but you know, once you're, but you, as you know, when you're looking for a, a sea otter, you spend most of your time seeing other things, not just the sea otter. So it opens up, you know, what's called, oh, I thought that was a sea otter. It's kelp. Wow, look how the kelp's swirling around and it's coming on shore and how cool the way the waves work and look how clear the water is and stuff. And um, I think by getting, you know, uh, animals are a great entry point into um, our greater environment. And so for me, um, I'm super, I've always been interested in animals. I think most people are, but for me, they're uh, what gets me um, out there, you know, on a hike, doing something, you know, healthy in the outdoors, but then it makes me, gosh, really appreciate like the coastline or, you know, where you guys are, oh, Utah, happy place. I mean, it's so beautiful. Um, some of my best hikes have been an Escalante National, you know, monument back in the day. So yeah, you, you know, you might, be lucky to see an animal out there, but, but you just spent the whole day in a beautiful place. So being curious about animals really gets you into seeing so much more. And I don't know, I don't know how to encourage you to be curious, but I think getting out there can't, you, you get curious by being outdoors. Yes. I, I was just fantasizing about swimming in a kelp forest with all these animals around me and these little sea otters that are somehow balance themselves on the top of the surface yeah. of the of the yeah. kelp so that they can sleep and relax and it's so that amazing. they can look around it's amazing there's i mean they're just the coolest animals they yeah they wrap themselves in the the kelp because you know the the tides pulling them in and out and so that's where they can relax Sometimes they hold paws together to keep, the, I mean, there's nothing cuter than that, but sea otters sometimes hold paws to keep each other uh, safe. But one of my uh, things that I learned about um, in researching this book is sea otters carry around a rock with them. Yeah. Um, they're one of the few animals that use tools. Mm -hmm. And so they have this little uh, loose skin under their arms. They tuck a rock in like a little pouch. And when they um, dive to the bottom of the ocean and pick up a clam, they use the rock to crack the clam open. So they've got this tool at the ready. I just think that's amazing. I mean, you know, I mean, they're, they're just so wonderful and um, interesting. And when you hear facts like that, and I think, you know, when kids hear facts like that, 
you can't help but you know want to make sure an animal like the sea otter can do its thing right and right. and let it you know and and keep those kelp forests protected i mean because they're really important so it's not just having sea otters but you have to have a healthy kelp forest in order to have healthy sea otters so that's right you know it's all connected you know i learned in school like i think most kids did that animals with scales are typically reptiles mm. but not the pangolin and I've, I've never heard of this animal before, but from head to toe, from 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 its from the tip of its tail to its nose, it's covered in these hard scales. And apparently the scales are used in Chinese medicine. Yeah, unfortunately, the pangolin is one of those animals that are just probably some of the, you know, we we imagine going to outer space and seeing aliens they're right here. It's a pangolin. <laughs> they're so incredibly uh, wild and, and unlike anything you could imagine. Uh, their scales are, uh, you know, kind of like um, keratin, like your fingernails, you know, like that material. Same material. Uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So unfortunately, um, they are used in, in traditional medicine. Um, and it's meant that so many are killed every year. They're also just a they're they're they just don't populate easily. They're slow to recover. So if their you know numbers are down, it's going to be really hard for them to come back. So yeah, um, they're a, a really unique special species, but they're really suffering right now. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> no way of harvesting the scales without killing the animal. No, I mean no. They're really shy, reclusive animals. Um, so with all of these, um, you know, animals, uh, their habitat is so important too. And so, you know, by people going in and disturbing their habitat, that's, that's a problem as well. So, you know, it's, as with everything, it's very layered. Yes, yes, and very delicate. Well, right. I have to ask you about fireflies, you know, in Utah, we don't have fireflies and many of our kids grow up. <laughs> I think my kids were in their twenties before they went to the south or wherever fireflies are prevalent. I think in, in may, maybe just in more humid climates. I think um, so. I grew up the same way. I actually wasn't even sure they were real. Like I thought they were something in fairy tales. Peter Pan. The first time I saw them, I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, how did how do they work? Oh, they're incredible. So um it's again one of those things where you know the animals they have a reason for everything right like so they're everything they do is intentional um because you know it's it's survival and so for fireflies the flashing lights it's a communication you know with each other uh, a lot of it's you know mating rituals and things like that um signaling but uh yeah it's about communication and um there it's if you've if you get a chance to experience on a human night the fireflies it's it's pretty although when you look at them not flashing they kind of look like a mosquito they're not quite as um pretty as right. yeah. <laughs> yeah and can you put them in a jar i think as a kid i visited yeah. cousins in arkansas and i think we tried to catch them and put them in a jar but what's the caveat about that uh, let them go eventually <laughs> Yeah, don't For hold sure. on to yeah, them too I, long. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think that like with kids, you know, it's really important to let them get like up close and and really see what's going on. It gives them such such an appreciation. And insects are actually um, 
one of the best places to learn about animals. I mean, I think that they're right in your backyard and even something like ants, which usually where there are nemesis when they're in our kitchen cupboards, uh, their social system's incredible. I mean, the way they lay down their, um, when they walk on the, you know, they lay down these chemicals through their feet that um, acts as signals when the other, you know, you'll you'll see them, you know, looking at the ground and following an exact trail. Um, if you just sat, sat on the sidewalk and looked at them for a minute, they're um, a little old ant is doing some pretty amazing things out there. So starfish are now called sea stars. Did right. they offend? a group in the, uh, a, a woke group in the, in the fish community? Probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that we're redefining a lot of things like, you know, fish, um, you know, is a certain category and yeah. Um, yeah. And so we're, we're constantly reclassifying lots of animals as we learn more about them, but I think we're just getting more specific with our names for sure. Yeah, um, not all jellyfish are fish anymore we call mm -hmm. them jellies instead um similarly so yeah. that's the thing as adults like you'll get corrected by a kid real quick on the sea star they seem to be on board with it but yeah um, yeah we're yeah that's a good example of uh you know so it, so it says up. that they're actually not fish and i i don't know if i can pronounce mm -hmm. this lynn but it's enchinoderm it's a type of animal closely related to sea urchins and sand dollars right mm -hmm. right I've, I've right, heard right, of that classification. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, it's a good example of like, we can improve on our wording to, you know, put them in the right category and s sort of set the record straight with sea stars. Oh, that's Sand dollars are also super cool too. Yeah. So Lynn and I are both dog nuts and you have a, a one of the questions here with pictures. Uh, why do dogs eat grass? Oh, yeah, that's kind of the age old question, right? So, yeah, I mean, I think we're, I think with all of these questions, we're always learning more and adjusting the answers. But yeah, is it that their stomachs are upset? Um, yeah, sometimes it helps settle them. Um, yeah, I mean, do dogs behave, dogs are really special because they've been living with humans for a long time. They've been domesticated a long time ago. And so we've really, um, they've really come to like work with us much more than cats. Like if you know, if you have a cat, you know, they don't really pay much attention to you or they need, they, they'll, they'll, you can come or go, they don't care. But dogs are, we really have a different kind of connection with, and that kind of comes with their evolutionary history with people, which is really cool. Yeah, that's what must be why I like dogs. I like to feel needed. Exactly. <laughs> and you know, one of the answers in the why book is about why dogs wag their tails. And I, I think it's so amazing in the middle of the night, my dog sleeps on his bed down by my bed. And when I wake up and turn over or, or just, you know, move a little bit, make a little bit of noise, he starts wagging his tail and I go, Oh, he knows I'm awake. So uh, but why do they wag their tails? Oh man. It's such like an insight into their, um, be into their mood, you know, yeah. so they're, their tail, if you just look at a dog's tail, which is a good thing for kids, actually, 
because kids, you know, really they're closer to eye level with dogs and they're uh, usually like right up in their face. And so a good thing for um, parents and adults um, around kids is to um, tell kids to, to take a look at the dog's tail and what is it doing? And that gives you an indication on how excited they are to be near you. Um, that waggy tail um, will probably for him, if you're awake, that means breakfast is coming. So that's exciting. So that's a, that's a happy, I'm excited um, tail. But you know, a tail that's droopy or sad, that's, you know, scared or they guilty because they got into something they weren't going supposed to. So that that tail is just so much more of a mood indicator, I think, um, than a lot of other animals have. And again, I think it kind of goes back to their, you know, history with us and knowing that they'll kind of get what they need, you know, plus those yeah. soulful eyes, they, the way they look at you, you're like, oh, okay, you can have a treat. Yeah, you can tell <laughs> what they're, what they're thinking. Well, yeah. I wanted to make sure I got a chance to talk about the size of an elephant's brain in mm -hmm. relation, the part that stores memory in relation to that of a human yeah. What about that? Elephants are amazing. And I think that we're only going to find out more and more about them, which is why I think we have to be really careful with their, they're at risk. And I think we have to be really careful with their habitat and uh, because they're sensitive. What is, what I found so cool was there was this study not that long ago that found that female elephants um, hadn't, they hadn't, they were living in an area that hadn't seen a drought in 30 years. You know, elephants live a very long time, but those elephants that had been around could lead their entire herd to water that is around when there's a drought, like one of those last watering holes that's still around. They remembered and were able to lead their entire herd there based on memory. That's insane. I don't remember, I wouldn't know my driving directions from last week. <laughs> And so their brains are incredible. Um, they're huge animals. They're really sensitive. They're matriarchs, you know, they're led, you know, by females. And um, yeah, we have a lot, we have a lot to learn from them for sure. Did you all ever hear the story of the elephant that was teased and was abused a little bit? And like 50 years later, the circus comes to town again and uh, the guys up in the in the audience that was uh, abusing him or teasing him, and the elephant broke uh, broke stride and went right up into the crowd and pummeled this guy. I mean, I don't know if it's true or not, but they must have a pretty good memory. Fifty years. I've heard I've heard similar things about that before, and that they like and good memories, but also being able to recognize a specific person. Yeah, is is pretty amazing. Uh, crows also are that way with people. They remember. Um, yeah, don't yes. mess. Don't mess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They deserve lots of respect. Yeah, but crows are crows are one of those really cool animals where they are just fiercely intelligent. I mean, they they know to uh, drop, you know, their food on a road, knowing, like, say, a hard like a walnut on yeah. the road, knowing a car's gonna roll by, crack it open so they can go down and eat it. I mean, that's like a multi-step process. Yeah. And they're just so intelligent. They also premeditate murder. And I think right. that humans are the only other uh, animal that kind of does that or that we think does right. that. Right. Right. It's pretty amazing. Um, yeah. They're, they use tools. They, they'll use a, they'll, they'll make a, a hook on a stick to get something out of like a jar or something. Mm. I mean, that's, you know, 
that's incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, maybe a final question here is to ask you about the koala. Oh, yes. That was my first stuffed animal. I loved it. Why do they have trees? This one actually really um, was interesting to me. And again, kind of like the flamingo one that isn't really intuitive. Uh, again, it has to do with uh, thermal regulation. Like, it, yeah. And again, it's, um, you know, it, heating up and cooling down their bodies, hugging the tree um, helps them thermal regulate. I never would have guessed that. I mean, I just would assume they were in the trees because that's where their eucalyptus is. And that's primarily what they eat. And that was Julie Beer, National Geographic, and the book, Why Animals?